If you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, we will be looking this morning at verses 23 through 38. The title of the sermon this morning is All in the Family. Our keywords are Jew, Gentile, and World. Now this morning we're looking at a text that many of us probably just read right through without taking much time to pause or we skip it all together when we're reading the Bible. I was listening to another pastor preach through this passage, and he told the congregation, the good news is we are gathered for worship on the Lord's Day. The bad news is I'm preaching a genealogy. Genealogies are very difficult to read especially when you don't know who the people are, and even more so when you don't really know how to pronounce most of the names. But one of the great challenges and blessings of preaching through books of the Bible as we do, verse by verse, is that we have to take time to work through very difficult portions of Scripture like this. And I admit, when I arrive at these verses in my study, knowing we're going to have to look at these this morning, I didn't get the same kind of excitement in my heart as I do with other parts of the Bible. But the Holy Spirit convicted me and reminded me that these names in these verses are just as much of God's holy and inspired word as all the rest of the Bible. And therefore, they are just as important. So I'm convinced that God has something in the text this morning to be of help to us. And beyond just having historical information that helps inform our journey through the gospel of Luke and the life of Jesus, I think there are some specific applications in relationship to how we understand Jesus as a man, how we understand Jesus as king, and how we understand Jesus as the savior of the world, which is how Luke has presented him all along. So let's begin by reading through the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, beginning in chapter 3 and verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Madhat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Isli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Yosech, the son of Yoda the son of Yonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Edai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Marhat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, 
the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elikim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Mahatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nehor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And we're going to be looking at a lot of names this morning, and I'm going to try and help us develop a framework to look at all of this through. But before we press on in Luke, it's also very important that we look at the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. So turn to Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to give us a few things to think about as we go there. And you're going to recognize that if you put Matthew and Luke side by side and compare these two genealogies to one another, you're going to notice some very significant differences between the two. There are similarities, and those similarities are very important, but you're going to see different names altogether. Matthew includes the names of four different women. Luke starts in the present and works back into the past. Matthew starts with the past and works forward into the future. Matthew's list is much shorter than Luke's. So let's read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah and Tamar and Perez the father of Hezron. And Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Amenidab. And Amenidab the father of Nashon. And Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz and Re- by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jehoniah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, 
Jehonian was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abu, and Abu the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Elizar, and Elizar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the generation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now, I think the best way for us to work through the genealogy of Jesus is for us to ask a lot of questions of the text. So that's what we're going to do this morning as we consider both Luke and Matthew together. The first thing that comes to mind for me as I read both of these is why is Luke's list shorter than Matthew's? Or excuse me, why is Luke's list uh, longer than, than Matthew's list of names? Luke gives us 77 names in his genealogy, and it's divided up 11 lists of seven names each. He begins with Jesus, and he ends with God the Father before Adam. And Matthew gives 42 names and identifies that he has included uh, three lists of 14 generations. So Matthew begins with Abraham and ends with Jesus. Now, part of answering the question uh, is recognizing who Matthew and Luke each intended their primary audiences to be. Of course, we recognize that the scriptures are for us and are profitable for all men, but God used holy men who were taught by the Holy Spirit to write the books of the Bible, and in doing so, they wrote with a specific audience in mind, in a specific place, at a specific time, remembering All of this helps to inform us in our reading, especially as we go through the four gospel accounts. Who is the primary audience of the author? Matthew's primary audience was very clearly the Jewish people. Matthew went to great lengths to prove that Jesus was indeed the long-awaited Messiah. And so Matthew only had to prove that Jesus was the rightful heir to the throne of David and was a descendant of Abraham in order to meet the legal requirements established by God for the one who would be the Messiah. Now Luke's primary audience was a Gentile man named Theophilus, if you recall from chapter 1. And we looked at Luke's intent in showing Theophilus that Jesus is the Savior of the world. In other words, he's not just beneficial to the Jewish people, but also for the Gentiles. That's been unmistakable through the first three chapters of Luke. He details all of these things as he he sought to capture the all-inclusiveness of Christ in people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So in giving this genealogical account, it was more important for Luke to trace back to Jesus' tie with all men through Adam, but even more significant to tie him back to God as his father, showing Jesus to be the true Son of God. Now notice also that Matthew began right out of the gate with Jesus' genealogy while uh, Luke waits until chapter 3. 
Matthew writes in a much more chronological manner than Luke does, who is writing his gospel account in a very systematic fashion. Luke is currently in the middle of a section where he is displaying all the credentials of Jesus to be the Messiah. He's amassing evidence to show that Jesus is who he's about to say he is. And Matthew must prove to the Jews from the very beginning that Jesus met all of the requirements or else the Jews would have paid no attention whatsoever to the gospel of Matthew. So Matthew and Luke have very different goals in mind when they are writing. There was no need for Matthew to go all the way back to Adam. It was already assumed by the Jews. Remember, Luke is writing as a historian. And he's showing us the culmination of all of redemptive history in Jesus from the beginning up until Jesus. Everything has been moving in one direction. And he shows us that through this genealogical account. Secondly, why do Matthew and Luke include different names? Why aren't they the same if it's the genealogy of Christ? At first, this may seem like a difficulty in the text, but it's actually quite simple. If you think to yourself quickly, you will have maybe a bit of a dumb moment here if you're tracking. Each and every one of us has two genealogical lines, hopefully. I suppose it depends on where you're from, but I hope you have some branches on your family tree. So if you are to trace the lineage of Nick Kennecott through my father, Mike Kennecott, you're going to get one list of names. If you trace the lineage of Nick Kennecott through my mother, Carla Kennecott, and the Bunting family, you're going to get a completely different list of names. And that's the same thing going on here with Matthew and Luke. Matthew is tracing Jesus' lineage through Joseph. And since Joseph is Jesus' adoptive father, Jesus receives the legal right to the throne of David because of Joseph's ancestry. Luke is tracing Jesus' lineage through Mary, proving that Jesus has the blood of David coursing through his veins. So because Joseph and Mary were both from the family of David, Jesus was truly a son of David and had the full legal right to claim the Davidic throne as a Messiah. Now, I want to point out that all of it would have, all that it would have taken for the Pharisees and teachers of the law to discredit Jesus in his ministry and his claims to be the Messiah would have been to show from the genealogical record that he wasn't a son of David. But no one ever, in all the Bible, no one ever accuses Jesus of not being from the line of David. That never comes up. And in fact, in Matthew 21, 9, remember Jesus is riding into, the, into town on the back of a full, and the crowds are shouting what? Hosanna to the son of David. They recognize that that is who he is. It wasn't in question. In fact, it was a well-known fact. The Jewish people kept very specific genealogical records. They, they were meticulous in this. But remember, in chapter 1 and 2, we see the journey of Joseph and Mary as they're, uh, they're traveling. And they had to go to Bethlehem to register for taxation purposes. Well, why Bethlehem? Why did they have to go to Bethlehem? Because they're of the family of David. That's where the family was to register, and those who were conducting the registration would have had the genealogical records of everyone on the scrolls to determine who was missing, who had died, etc., 
And among the families of David, they even kept their own personal genealogical records because the family knew that the Messiah would come through them. So it was a common practice for them to keep these records, to know who was in the family so they'd be able to show the Messiah's right to the throne, just as Matthew and Luke have done in this passage. Thirdly, if Luke's gospel shows the genealogy of Jesus through Mary, why doesn't he include her name? It was very rare that any genealogical record would ever include the names of a woman, which makes Matthew's account incredibly unique in any ancient Near East record. So Luke, being a very precise historian, wasn't going to include Mary's name as to discredit his historical work. But in a very subtle way, he really does identify that he's not using Joseph's lineage, doesn't he? Look at verse 23 in Luke 3. He says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. This is important. Being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. As was supposed. Think about this. In the history of all the world, how many genealogies have begun with a man who was born of a virgin? Do you know anybody who's been born of a virgin? So in a very subtle manner, Luke is reminding his readers of what he has already pointed out earlier. Mary was a virgin when Jesus was in her womb and when Jesus was born. So although most people assume Joseph was Jesus' biological father, it was only supposed. Because in reality, Jesus' father is God alone, as Luke will show us. And he shows us uh, at the end of the genealogical list and why he goes all the way back to God the Father. But we recognize based on the various nuances of each list, that they point, uh, the, what they point to for the Jew and for the Gentile and the people of the world. That each of the lists are very important to have a proper understanding of Jesus' lineage. This is, of course, a very unique situation, so we cannot expect a generic conclusion. So Luke, very... Uh, very much so, is seeking to uh, trace out Jesus' lineage through his mother, Mary, but does not mention her as to discredit his historical work. Fourth, why does Matthew include the names of four females in his genealogical list, if what we just said was true? If you noticed in reading Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, he mentions Tamar. Verse 5, he mentions Rahab and Ruth. And in verse 6, he makes reference to Bathsheba. He doesn't state her name, but he mentions that Solomon was born to David by the wife of Uriah. Now, it's already significant that, that Matthew includes the name of these women in the genealogy at all. But what's particularly significant is who these women are. They're not queens, they're not highly regarded women in the Jewish community, and they're not even considered clean, not one of them. Remember Tamar? She disguised herself after her husband died. She disguises herself as a prostitute to entice her father-in-law to get her pregnant because he did not fulfill his responsibility and promise to provide for her his next youngest son. Remember Rahab? She housed uh, the spies, but she worked as a prostitute in Jericho. 
Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, who was taken in by David. He impregnated her and had Uriah killed so he could become her new husband. And Ruth, Ruth was a foreigner in the land of Moab. She was an unclean Gentile and yet was the mother of Obed, who was the grandfather of King David. These are, these are like the family members that some of us might have, right? Oh, yeah, and I have, I have family in Texas. Tell me about what are they? What are they like? Oh, well, they live in Texas. That's about it, right? They're the ones that generally don't get talked about. Conveniently, they seem to be forgotten about when the family history is being rolled out and everyone's telling their favorite stories about each other. They don't ever seem to mention crazy Uncle Ron in Texas. But here they are, right at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. And the Jewish readers would have been well aware of these women and their reputations because it's in the Old Testament for all of us to read. So what's the point? I think here's our first point of application from the genealogies. Jesus, who is the author and sustainer of the new creation and the repairer of the broken world, is to be reckoned among ordinary, broken, sinful, fallen children of Adam, just like you and just like me. The fact is that in one way or another, Many of us in this room can identify in some way with at least one of these women. At least in the fact that we are all Gentiles like Ruth and Rahab. But as we've seen through the Gospel of Luke already, God's design in Jesus' humanity was not to identify with the cultural and political and religious elite of his day. These four women are exactly the ones that Jesus was most interested in. We sing about it, right? Not the righteous, but sinners Jesus came to save. And there's nothing in your past sin that cannot be forgiven by God. And we see that very clearly right here in a list of names. We have example after example after example in the Bible of men and women who were completely and totally messed up. And they engaged in horrible sin and deplorable immorality. And yet Jesus shows them compassion and grace and forgiveness for their iniquities. It's not that they weren't guilty or deserving of God's wrath, of course. We're all guilty in our sin and deserving of the wrath of God. Every last one of us. But in his great love for his people, Jesus took that wrath upon himself so that we need not endure it and gave us a right standing before the Father. He gives to us a righteousness that is not our own. It's not through our doing something, but through what Christ has already done. So if you're thinking, perhaps you are, that you've sinned too much, there's a big black stain on your life that Christ won't save you, I want you to consider these women. When you consider people in the Bible like the Apostle Paul or King David, don't try to clean yourself up thinking that that's going to please God. Don't think you're, you're too foul or ha- have too much stench in your life to be endured by God. Now, we also sing these words, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is willing, doubt No more. 
Stop trying to fix yourself so that God will love you. You can't do it. We have this great display of God's care for sinners like us in Jesus' lineage. He's not embarrassed by those who are in his family. It's right here in his word. He embraces them as the fallen creatures that they are, just like everyone else in this list of names. It's the very reason his human nature is so vitally important to us. It's because we are Tamars and Rahabs and Bathshebas and Ruths that Jesus came to live and die as a perfect man on our behalf. He is able to have compassion. He is able to identify with us because he was us, only without sin. He was tempted in every way as we are tempted, yet without sin. And he walked through trial after trial, yet without sin. And so he sees our infirmities and our miseries and our failures and our losses, and he embraces us. He's not ashamed of his children. He loves us. He's pleased to include us in his family tree. And he's delighted when we stand tall and say, God is my father and I am his son. We don't get buried in his genealogy. We get mentioned right alongside everybody else. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift of grace. Fifth, what is the significance of the names that Matthew and Luke record? It's a wonderful study if you go through each of the names in Jesus' lineage and figure out who the people are and what the Bible records about each of them. You're not going to find anything on all of them, but most of them you will. And if you do that, you recognize that compared to the genealogies in the book of Genesis, several names are missing from the lists provided. In the case of Matthew and Luke, the statement son of or the father of does not necessarily imply a father-son relationship. Oftentimes it's in reference to a uh, a grandson or a great-grandson to his grandfather type relationship. But what I want to point out specifically is the goal of the gospel writers being fulfilled and how they go about identifying Jesus as the son of David. And then beyond that, we will look at where Luke goes with this, bringing us all the way to the father. Now, what's important to know is that King David had five sons with Bathsheba. The first was seven days old when he died and never had a name since Jewish children generally received their name on the eighth day when they were circumcised. The other four sons in order were Solomon, Shobab, Nathan, and Shamua. Now Matthew is establishing that Jesus is of the finest Jewish pedigree to show the Jews that he meets the requirements of the Messiah. Matthew's showing Jesus' kingship. He is the son of royalty. His Jewishness is established through Abraham, but his royal kingship is in relationship to David. And not only David, but also Solomon, the son of David, who also sat on the throne. So Matthew shows us that through his adoptive Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph, that Jesus is tied in the same line as King David through his son, King Solomon. That Jesus is of royal lineage and therefore he's eligible for the kingship. 
That's Matthew. Now, now Luke, once again, remember, is establishing the humanity of Jesus. He wants to show that Jesus meets the requirement of the Messiah, but he also wants to identify, as he has all along, that Jesus is human like you and like I. Now, Mary's link to David, which is very important here, is through David and Bathsheba's son, Nathan. What's significant about their son, Nathan? Really nothing at all. That's the point. Just like the insignificance of young Mary from a nothing town, we see through many of the names in Jesus' genealogy that there are many more that bear very little importance in the books of the Bible. But they serve a very important role in pointing to Jesus as the Savior of the world in a way that the Jews would have never expected. Just like you and I. We may be very insignificant in the eyes of the world, but we play a very important role in pointing the world to our Father and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we see through Luke's genealogy that he identifies with the humble and lowly, and yet we saw in Matthew he is the King of Kings. Now, in terms of Luke's gospel, there are four significant names that we need to consider in more detail, and then we'll deal with another point of application and be done. The first name is David. He mentions David in verse 31. We spent a good amount of time establishing the connection between David and Jesus. But remember in Luke chapter 1, Verse 32, the angel Gabriel told the young Virgin Mary that Jesus would be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So it was already established in the first chapter of Luke that this is exactly what he's identifying in this genealogy. None of this, of course, is lost on the Jews. It is very clear to them what is being implied through all of this. The great Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel chapter 7 is God's declaration to David that your throne shall be established, how long? Forever. And indeed, in Jesus, the throne is established forever. You see, David was merely a shadow of the great king that was yet to come. He was a placeholder of the great Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would take the throne. Not in Jerusalem to rule the land, but in heaven to rule the universe. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And so the name of David in the midst of this genealogy is very, very important. Secondly, we see in verse 34 the name of Abraham. The Apostle Paul identifies in Galatians 3.16 that God's promise to Abraham was a promise to his offspring, who is Christ. Paul writes, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Remember when God told Abram in Genesis 15, Look toward the heavens, number the stars, if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. It was a far greater promise than Abraham could have ever imagined. 
It was a promise that reaches its climax in Revelation 7, 9 through 12. Remember, John is in the great throne room of Christ and he writes, And I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and saying, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. All of God's people gathered together before the throne of Christ, worshiping forever and ever. You see, the significance of Jesus' lineage as the seed of Abraham lies in that in Christ, in the words of the Apostle Paul, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So Luke identifies for Gentiles like you and I that the promises of God find their fulfillment not in Jewishness, but in Christ. Christian, if you are in Christ, you are the offspring of Abraham and are united to Christ. Therefore, the great promises of God are yours. The great promise that all that is from God is for his children. The great inheritance that we receive as his adopted sons and daughters. Third, we see the name of Adam in verse 38. As I've already mentioned, Luke is concerned with linking Jesus to humanity. Jesus is not some transcendent spirit being that is unknowable and unable to identify with his creation. No. Jesus is like us, or perhaps more accurately, we should say that we are like him. So Jesus is not just a son of Abraham. More importantly, he is the son of Adam. He is a man. His humanity, not his ethnicity, is the crucial thing. It calls to mind Paul's teaching that Christ is a second Adam, the institutor of new humanity. Remember 1 Corinthians 15? Paul writes, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So like Adam, Jesus was a man, but is a new second Adam whose ministry will be to create and assemble a new race of humans from every people group of the world. And so it's very significant that Luke draws the lineage of Jesus back to Adam. He identifies Jesus in his humanity. And we also see in verse 38 that Jesus is the Son of God. This is very significant because the Jews recognized that they were tied back to Adam. But since Adam fell, they would not have identified themselves with God the Father in this way. 
Luke is making very clear that Jesus, the Son of God, is eternal and sinless. And Jesus exercises his perfect eternal sonship as he takes on Adam's and our flawed sonship. And therefore, he's able to redeem it. Paul wrote, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. He also wrote in Romans 5, 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The failed, flawed blood of the first Adam would be redeemed by the blood of the flawless, triumphant second Adam. Christ, the Son of God, became a son of Adam so that we, sons of Adam, can be sons of God. You see, the beauty of discovering all that Luke has presented in the genealogy of Jesus, is the clear reminder that we are not left to ourselves. We are not called to make right what has been corrupted in the sins of Adam because Christ, the Son of Adam, the Son of God, has done it for us. And so Luke has woven together this beautiful tapestry of God's redemptive plan through his people to show us that this 30-year-old man named Jesus has a ministry with a significance far beyond anything we could ever hope or imagine at this point. He is the Son of God, and in Him we are made to be co-heirs of His great inheritance. How? Because those who are broken and mangled, children of Adam, dead in our transgressions and sins. He lays the old life to death and gives us new life in Christ. And as we are in him, the righteousness of Christ is given to us, that we would walk in obedience to the Lord, joyful, thankful obedience. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Because of what Christ has accomplished for us, and because of the love of the Father that overflows our hearts with joy. So through the names of all who lived, perhaps we can look at them and determine that none of them truly understood the significance of their own life. Perhaps for many of us, we can look at the significance of us and say, there's really not much at all. But just like the names in Jesus' lineage We are part of Jesus' family. We are his children. We are his sons. We are his daughters. And that gives us far greater significance than anything we can imagine and anything that the world would seek to ascribe to us. And so gloriously, faithfully, joyfully, we can all say together, we are sons and daughters of the King. He is our Father. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us 
gems of truth in every word of the Scriptures. That as we look to your word that you revealed to us, what is so great and so glorious about all that you've done throughout redemptive history. Lord, we, just like all of the people in the names that we've read, have no idea what you are to do with us in the days ahead. But we do know this, that if we are in Christ, that we are your children, that you have loved us and set your affections upon us. You have adopted us into your family. And so as we look at one another, we can truly say, brother, sister. And as we come to you, we cry, Abba, Father. Thank you, O God. And thank you that Jesus submitted himself to becoming a son of Adam as the son of God, that he might redeem humanity, that we don't come and wonder where our hope lies, but rather that we see that all of our hope is found in Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, who has redeemed us for your glory and for our joy. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. And thank you for your compassion. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.